Jason Scorse, and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great in these dog days of summer. The title of this episode is The IRA Bill is a BFD. BFD, for those of you who don't know, is big fucking deal. And that's what Biden said after Obama passed the Affordable Care Act. And this is going to be a largely happy podcast for a change. It's a podcast I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. I mean, really since, you know, I started podcasting, although under the Trump years, that was, of course, impossible. Um, But ever since Biden came in in January 2021, it's been, you know, a year and a half. And we've been waiting for a big, historic, transformative, game-changing bill. And we finally got it. Right. The IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of a political name. It's not really what it's about. It will lower prices, but that's not its 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 focus is a really big deal. It is mostly a climate change bill, although it does have some other really good stuff in it, too. And I just want to start by putting things in historical perspective from the progressive side, from the liberal side. Despite some wins over the last few decades, progressives haven't had something that really changed the paradigm of American society. Something like universal health care, guaranteed paid family and sick leave for all Americans, free college education, right? Game changers that fundamentally change a big you know, part of the American economy of American society. Now, of course, these are things that are standard in most other advanced economies, but we have nowhere near them in America. In these last decades, we've gotten some good things. Progressives have won some victories, like I mentioned, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Under Clinton in the 90s, we got the Children's Health Insurance Program. We also have got the Earned Income Tax Credit, which gives you know, money to poor people, and that's been augmented over the years. But... Even though these are good policies, even even though these are progressive victories, they've been mostly things on the margins. Increasing health care a little for this or that group, increasing a little money for the poor. They haven't been transformative, paradigm-shifting legislative victories. That's why the IRA bill is the most important bill passed since the 1960s, I would say, since the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s. So this means this is the most important bill that has been passed in almost 60 years, which is longer than I've been alive. So this is the biggest, most consequential bill passed in my lifetime. And that's a long time without a big win, and we needed it badly. And it feels so damn good to get a win on this scale. And for the left, for progressives, this is a novel feeling. Think about it. Right? We've been on a defense almost our whole lives when it was Reagan, and then it was Bill Clinton doing some good stuff, but also doing a lot of shitty stuff. Then it was George Bush destroying the world. Then Obama come in and got a few things, but never really lived up to it. 
Then it was four years of sedition, treason, and barbarism under Trump. So it's just been a fucked up record, right? America is a fucked up country with a fucked up record. And so liberals, if we get little things around the edges, we're happy. If we prevent bad things from happening and spiraling out of control, we're happy. But this is a big affirmative thing. This is something we wanted. And it was close to what we had been asking for. It wasn't some super watered down compromise. And at the end, you're like, yeah, I got something, but uh, not that great. This is a fucking big fucking deal. It is a huge down payment on our climate goals and one that attacks the climate emergency from almost every angle. It represents a huge victory for the climate movement that redefined the terms of the climate debate in just a few short years. Now, some, particularly Matt Iglesias, who I like, um, you know, he was at Vox. Now he's got his own newsletter. He writes some syndicated columns. People like him are trying to minimize the climate left since this final bill doesn't come anywhere near the ambition of the Green New Deal that the left launched a few years ago. But Matt is really missing the big point, and he's really wrong. I think deep down he knows he's wrong, and he just he's kind of in that centrist mode where he kind of likes punching hippies and being contrarian and telling them how they're wrong and they're not politically savvy. But he really is missing the point, and he's dead wrong about this. The key here to understand from a political perspective is the Green New Deal, while it did call for huge things like universal health care and free college and all that because it wanted to merge social justice and equity and environmental justice and equity, that was pie-in-the-sky stuff that, of course, the the framers of that 14-page document knew wasn't going to happen overnight. The big shift that the Green New Deal ushered in was a movement away from trying to tax carbon or do a cap-and-trade policy for carbon and switching to subsidizing demand and supply in a new industrial policy. That was the innovation of the Green New Deal. And the way to think about it is that it was changing the paradigm from using sticks to carrots, right? Instead of taxing industry and making them pay for pollution, we're just going to pay, use government money and investment to support the good stuff, the green stuff. Now, politically, this is a big shift, right? Because corporations don't like sticks, but they love carrots. And so it made the political calculus a lot easier. It also made it easier from a consumer standpoint because carbon pricing is going to increase the cost of dirty energy. Now we're just going to make cheaper, clean energy, right? So it's a big shift, and that's what they got. This bill is all about that shift in new industrial policy and in, you know, carrots, not sticks. There's also tons of money in it, tens of billions for environmental justice initiatives. It's smart industrial policy that gives higher incentives to companies that pay better wages, that use more U.S. content, right? So this is just smart, solid policy, and it's a fundamental difference from what my profession, the economics profession, has been been pushing, which is internalize externalities, make polluters pay. Great on paper, bad on politics. The environmental community switched the paradigm, flipped the script, and here we are in 2022 getting a huge um, bill. Also, since these funding is for 10 years, 
right? It's the longest ever in U.S. history that green policy gets guaranteed 10 years of funding. It will dramatically accelerate innovation and adoption and scale because of the certainty of knowing that these tax incentives and payments are around for a decade. And look, the original Build Back Better bill that was passed in the House in November and that Manchin shot down was better. I wish it had more for climate. It had stuff for, you know, for college and for, you know, uh, child care. I wish it had, you know, it had passed. But what's really important to note is the climate stuff from Build Back Better was is almost intact in this new bill, which is a huge testament to the movement's power within the Democratic coalition. So, yes, huge programs got cut out of the Build Back Better bill. But the climate stuff really stood, withstood the test and is almost there in its entirety. Now, there's a ton in this bill, and I'm going to link in the show notes to the David Roberts podcast, his Volts podcast, where he speaks to two scholars who know the details so you can get a sense of how big and sweeping it is. And let me be clear, they don't cover everything. In an hour and 15 minutes, they barely scratch the surface. But it's an incredibly good detailed podcast that, again, just gives you a sense of how this is the real deal. And I highly recommend listening to that podcast in its entirety. So look, right now, with the passage of this bill, humanity and all life on Earth, right? Because, you know, non-humans are suffering under the climate emergency, have a much better future right now. This is a game changer. We're not on the trajectory to, you know, to 1.5 yet, but we made a big down payment. And now I can look my 11-month-year-old daughter in the face and tell her, you know, hey, Lila, things are going to get better. We made a big improvement. We're going to get things, you know, in a better trajectory for your generation. Now, of course, there is still a lot of work to be done. Like I said, this is a down payment, but it's not, you know, it's not $5,000 on a $100,000 bill. This is $50,000, $75,000 on a $100,000 bill. So these are good times. This is a good, good victory, and this is a good moment for the left, for progressives, and again, for all of humanity and life on this planet. So I'll come back after the break, and we'll talk about the politics uh, surrounding this. Okay, so let's now talk about the politics. Again, the substance, great. Listen to the David Roberts podcast, read articles. But let's talk a little bit about the politics because this is obviously incredibly important. So first off, I want to point out what maybe was the stupidest political column ever written by a progressive. Of course, the right wing writes stupid, nonsensical shit every minute of every day. But I mean by a smart progressive. And this is Robert Reich. Now, for those of you who don't know, he was the labor secretary under Clinton. He writes a lot of columns. He primarily writes in The Guardian, and he's syndicated. He's on a lot of talk shows. He's a very smart guy, very liberal. Me and him, if we sat down, we share most of the same values. 
But when Manchin scuttled the deal, or apparently had scuttled the climate deal, you know, about a month back, Reich wrote a column in The Guardian that said Manchin should be kicked out of the Democratic Party. This is lock you up in an insane asylum level of stupidity. Look, put aside that Manchin not only worked on the deal and championed it and went on all the major news programs to promote this bill, even Fox News, but let's say he hadn't. Let's say Manchin had scuttled the deal and there was no climate bill. Kicking him out of the party would have handed control of the Senate to Moscow Mitch. So we would have had no more judicial appointments, no chance at any legislation, no chance at new executive appointments, and complete powerlessness. So to even suggest such a thing is political malpractice of the highest order. And Rice wasn't alone in his thinking. You saw all kinds of liberals talking, you know, shitting on Manchin. But Manchin did come through, and I'm sure Reich feels like a fool for writing that column. And he should, right? Here's the thing. Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are corporate Democrats, and in many ways they're horrible. But our worst senators are better than the best in the Republican Party. Let that sink in. The worst, the absolute worst of our senators are better than the best of theirs. And let's also put things in perspective here, right? Joe Manchin is in West Virginia. That is the state that Trump won by the highest margin. The highest margin. More than Alabama. More than Mississippi. Okay? And so the notion that we even have a Democrat in that state, and Manchin is popular in that state, is amazing. So the notion that you would kick him out of the party? I mean, what the fuck are you smoking? Right? You need, we need everyone we can. Right? The, the, the system, especially the Senate, is completely tilted against Democrats. So you don't kick people out. The fuck are you talking about, right? Now, look, I don't love Manchin, but for West Virginia, imagine the Republican who would replace him. I guarantee you Manchin is a thousand times better than whoever the Republican would be who would replace him. Now, of course, he also came back and, like I said, championed this bill and got it passed. So again, you don't kick people out of your coalition. You do your best to work with them. And again, I give huge props to Chuck Schumer for working with Manchin and getting this done. This is like history-making stuff. Now back to the Republican Party for a second. Not one of those fucking stinking cowards voted for the Inflation Reduction Act. Not one. So look, I'll take a compromised coal baron from West Virginia over any Republican any day. And what besides, you know, saving humanity did the fascist GOP vote against? Because again, there were other things in this bill. They voted voted against lowering prescription drug costs. They voted against extending Obamacare subsidies. And for small tax increases on corporations and a doubling of the IRS budget to go after tax cheats. This is probably the part that the GOP hated the most. Right, that they're increasing the IRS budget because the, the GOP villainizes the IRS, villainizes the people who collect taxes. Right, they've been star- starving the Internal Revenue Service for decades so that they can let rich people get away with theft, and now that's coming to an end. That's another huge, great victory. So I called Manchin's offices to thank him. Right, I said thank you, Senator Manchin, for coming together and getting this done. That's what you do in a big coalition. You work with what you got, and you keep in trying to improve your odds. Now, I want to say one other thing about the politics. 
In the amendment process, the Republicans almost completely, 43 out of the 50, voted against capping insulin prices at $35 for those with private insurance. So they want people who are diabetic to pay hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars in insulin costs because that's, quote, the free market, right? So that's going to make some good campaign ads um, talking about how Republicans want you to pay more for your insulin, right? So anyway, Schumer, you know, he really gets huge props here because, again, getting this deal done with a senator from West Virginia who gets a lot of money from the fossil fuel industry, that's tough. And to keep everybody in line, all 50, no margin forever, that's simply masterful. This is stuff that has never happened in, in U.S. history, right? All the other big you know, Democratic victories, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare. This is done when we had 60, 65, 70 U.S. senators, never with these zero margins of error. So look, um, I want to give another shout out here to a part of the negotiations where I think the Democrats finally learned their lesson. And this, I want to give credit in a lot of ways to Bernie Sanders. What you do in negotiations is you aim really high from the outset so that when you inevitably compromise, you end up with something big. That's what the Democrats did this time around. If they had started out asking for $400 billion for the climate, which is what we got, you think they would have gotten that? Of course not. If you start out asking for 400, Manchin would have negotiated it down to 200. So you start out asking for the sky. You ask for a trillion, two trillion, 700 billion, right? That's negotiations 101. That's what I teach my students, right? When they're negotiating a salary, ask for something at the high end, knowing that they'll probably meet you somewhere in the middle. But it's one thing that Obama seemed to be entirely clueless about. He always would start negotiations with Republicans with what he exactly wanted, and he'd have to settle for something way less. And it frustrated me and other progressives to no end, because how are you going to do an own goal like that? How are you going to not even understand something that a six-year-old understands? When they say, Mommy, Daddy, I want you know five scoops of ice cream, right? And they end up with two, right? They're using better negotiating skills than Obama had. But it seems like Democrats have finally learned this lesson. So look, in Schumer, after the bill passed, he had a press conference and he made clear that you don't always get everything you want, but that they got almost everything. He also made clear in a big diss to Mitch McConnell that saying no to things is easy, but he wants to get to yes. Or like I've said in this podcast many times, destroying is easy, but building is hard. Right. And he wants to build while McConnell wants to destroy. He also pointed out, like I pointed out in this podcast, I'm not saying Democratic strategists are listening to me, but it's just nice to see that we're in accordance here, that Democrats don't have to lie about the bills that they put forward because they're popular with the American people. He just talked about what was in the bill. He said, we don't have to exaggerate. We don't have to lie because our bills are in the public interest, whereas the right has to lie to cover up the fact that they're just shilling for the rich. And he talks about how the 2017 tax cut, they, the Republicans were talking about what a great tax cut for the middle class when that was bullshit. He's like, we don't have to lie. We can just tell you what we're doing because what we're doing is popular. And then when he was asked about the filibuster, he's, someone said, hey, there's been all this recent bipartisan bills, you know, like the semiconductor bill and the gun bill, saying, hey, doesn't that show that we don't need to remove the filibuster? And he said, I will keep all my options on the table. 
Whenever the GOP wants to cooperate, great. I love doing bipartisan stuff. But if they're not going to cooperate and it's important for the American people, we will use whatever power we have to do the work for the public good. That is perfect messaging. And it's right on the substance, right? You use the power you have to do the things that you promised your constituents. If Republicans want to work with you, great. If they don't, you do it on your own, right? Not, not, it's not rocket science, but he explained it in a nice, simple way and pushed back against, oh, we never have to reform the filibuster, right? Finally, well, most voters aren't even going to know what's in this bill. I'm under no illusion that, you know, most Americans are excited about this as I am. Um, it's definitely going to positively impact people's lives. You know, people are going to get huge tax credits for, you know, electrifying their homes and buying electric cars. Also, maybe perhaps more importantly, this is going to create a lasting constituency for green power that serves progressive interests. Because some recent articles have come, in, come out showing that most of the jobs for green energy are in red districts. So this is a great way to break the partisan divide and divide the Republicans. If all these new battery plants and solar plants are going up in Republican areas, that's going to soften at least you know the voters' opposition to these things. And that's a great way to divide the Republican Party. Plus, once business gets used to the billions in incentives that they're getting from this bill, they're going to want to keep them coming, no matter who is in charge. Again, very, very smart politics. One final point here. It seems as if Manchin and Schumer completely played McConnell in this whole process. Since McConnell had said the Republicans wouldn't vote for that semiconductor bill if the Democrats passed a climate bill. So a few weeks ago, about a month ago, Manchin came out and he said negotiations are off. Then the, the, the Senate passed the chip bill and a bunch of Republicans uh, signed on and voted for it. And then right away, an hour later, Manchin went back to the podium and said, climate bill negotiations are back on. And the Republicans were apoplectic. They realized they had been completely played. This is fucking brilliant. It's brutal politics, exactly how I like it. Just slam the Republicans, play them for the fucking dipshits they are. It's exactly how these fascists should be treated. Seeing the Democrats play hardball by, like this is beautiful. Again, it's something I've almost never seen in my lifetime. We won a big, huge climate and healthcare victory, and we humiliated Mitch McConnell and the entire Republican caucus at the same time. That is a big win-win. So after the break, I'll come back with a little bit more on the larger themes that Democrats will run on in the lead up to the midterms after the break. Okay, so it has been a busy legislative session for the Democrats, and it's not necessarily over yet. The one thing that I'm really still looking at, and I mentioned this in my January podcast, is the Electoral Count Act. That's one thing I'm watching closely. Supposedly, there are nine Republican senators that support it, so they would just need one more to get it past the, the filibuster. 
But we'll have to see. After the climate bill is passed and, you know, the Republican senators are throwing hissy fits that they got played, this could be collateral damage. And that would make me question whether they should have done that first. But look, that's not neither here nor there just yet. Let's see how that plays out. But I'm watching that very closely because that Electoral uh, Count Act reform would prevent some of the potential ways a Republican could, you know, do a coup to overthrow an election. So again, an important bill I'll keep my eye on and report on this podcast. But look, the larger political context, while not absolutely favorable to the Democrats, is certainly shifting in their favor. Gas prices are dropping precipitously. They're not down, you know, to where they were a year ago, but they're, you know, they've dropped, I think, for almost, you know, two months straight. Um, And that's great because somehow Americans really freak out when gas goes up, you know, a dollar. Um, So that's great news. Hopefully that will keep going. And I think it will once the summer season ends and demand goes down. Also, tying them to the anti-abortion Supreme Court decision is definitely going to be a must, especially after the Kansas blowout where, you know, in a deep red state, they rejected by almost 20 points. Um, you know, a a change to the Constitution to ban abortion. So look, I think painting the GOP as extremists is going to be easy in this cycle. We got the January 6th committee and just the crazy shit. I mean, every day it's just crazier and crazier, you know, the shit that's coming out about Trump and his fascist cabal. And look, I think this is changing minds. I think, you know, even people who are on the fence are going, holy shit, this was bad. So I think you're going to be able to paint them as abortion extremists, as anti-democracy extremists, and I think this is going to have some effect on the margins. It's also now official that the Department of Justice is investigating Trump, I think too slowly. I think Trump should be indicted soon. But look, things are looking up for the Democrats at just the right time, right? Gas going down, January 6th heating up. Um, you know, things are going in, in the right direction, passing a lot of important bills. So if we can ride this momentum for the next few months, we might be able to gain some seats in the Senate and keep the House. Now, that's when things could get really interesting, right? Imagine if, you know, people were predicting a blowout red wave for the Republicans, and instead the Democrats come back with 52, 53 Senate seats and they held the House. And people go, holy shit, maybe people weren't that upset with the Democrats. Maybe the Republicans have gone off the deep end. That would have a couple benefits. First of all, it'd be an all-out fucking civil war in the Republican Party, right? If the Republicans don't really kick ass in the midterms, and if if they don't even capture one House of Congress, it's going to be an all-out bloodbath. And that is just nothing but good news for Democrats. But on the legislative side, if we get two or three more senators, they're going to get rid of the filibuster and then codify the Roe abortion um, provisions. And they might do voting rights, more climate stuff, and some of the social stuff that got you know jettisoned out of the Build Back Better bill. So there's just a huge, huge potential for both great new progressive victories and complete turmoil disarray and destruction of the Republican Party. So this midterm is just incredibly important. And luckily, the momentum at this point, you know, with a little less, you know, than three months to go is heading in the Democrats direction. Now, there's a ton more work to do, of course, and I'll come back and that will be part of the antidote.
Okay, so for the antidote today, I just want to first just countenance, you know, thinking of the long game, thinking of patience, eyes on the prize, right? This is what I've been saying since I started this podcast more than five years ago. We were in the depths of despair under the fascist cabal, right? Nothing comes quickly in America, nothing ever. And to be honest, this climate victory is pretty quick given that The Green New Deal was a 14-page white paper a little over three years ago, and then we got something huge three years later. That's like a lightning strike in American politics. And the Democrats, even though they are deeply flawed, imperfect, and frustrating as hell, they are working for the public good. And remember, the alternative are fascist theocrats. So the next time somebody says, both parties are the same, the Dems don't deliver, The Dems are always in disarray. Please, politely tell them to shut the fuck up. That they're being lazy and that they need to pay attention. That the parties could not be more different on every issue. Gay rights, women's rights, health care, climate, guns, immigration, systemic racism, justice. Every fucking issue you can imagine. They're completely opposite. So be a proud Democrat. Roll with confidence. We are getting shit done. Very good stuff. And look, step up for the midterms. You want to see that the the, the Republicans in disarray and the Democrats come back and codify women's rights and do a new voting rights bill? Then step up. Donate some money to key House and Senate races. Whatever you can. You know, if it's 10 bucks, if it's 10,000, whatever you can. Go to Act Blue, the website Act Blue, and they'll have a bunch of links for you to, you know, to for the top races. If you can't donate money, volunteer or do both. Encourage your network to vote. Do what you can. Step up. Be part of the process. We get the government we deserve, so let's get one that we can even be more proud of. And finally, let's all give big props to Biden, Schumer, and of course Nancy Pelosi who is the most successful Speaker of the House in modern history and by far the most powerful woman in all of American history. So call their offices. Call them and just say, hey, thanks for passing the the IRA bill. Great work. You know, great work. Keep it up. And donate money. Volunteer. Step up. We got less than three months, and we can have a really, really amazing midterm election if we all step up. And finally celebrate, enjoy, savor this moment as they don't come very often. This is the first in my lifetime, right, that I've had this level of enthusiasm for the stuff getting done in the U.S. government. 
So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Subscribe on, subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, stay safe, take care, and be well.